as we enter our 50s, because of certain shifts in brain function and certain genetic things, et cetera, et cetera, we gain access to legitimate cognitive superpowers. So one of the reasons I was able to learn so quickly is in our 50s, intelligence source and really like abstract reasoning, problem solving, really difficult to access portions of intelligence soar because of neurobiological changes. Same thing happens to creativity, creativity soars and um, including divergent thinking, right? Thinking outside the box, the hardest, most difficult to train aspect of creativity and really at the heart of innovation, right? We want to keep pace in an accelerated society in our, in our businesses this kind of creativity and innovation problem solving you really need. We also see, and HR is gonna love this, expansions in empathy and wisdom. Welcome back everyone to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Happy holidays and happy new year, everyone. I'm Ira Wolf, and welcome to our last Geek Skeezers and Googleization episode of the year. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And what a year it's been. Not only is Geek Skeezers and Googleization the recipient of the most forward-thinking impact award from the People Forward Network, but we get to close out the year with the incomparable Stephen Kotler. That's right, Ira. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice, the most important, crucial conversations that are confronting business leaders and people today. Our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the impact and convergence of business, technology, and people. And this episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization is sponsored by our partner, Y Institute, your personal and professional GPS for a meaningful life and a purpose-filled career. You'll hear more about the Y operating system and the Y Institute later. Today, we're honored and humbled to have Stephen Kotler join us. Why so many people are listening or watching this episode can be summed up in two simple words, Stephen Kotler. And for those who don't know who Stephen is, you'll be thrilled that you decided to click, play, and tune in. So this is the perfect time to have Stephen because it's the end of the year. And what does that mean? New Year's resolutions. And millions and millions of people will be making them. They're going to start exercising on January 2nd. They're going to lose a few pounds during the month of January. They're going to find another job that they've been putting off for probably the last six months or a year or or longer. And while these might be big steps for these individuals, they're really pretty modest in the scheme of life. So let's try this one on for size. When you're looking at New, year res New Year's resolutions, mine will be to speak clearly, I will wonder how, I wonder how many people might include to do the impossible. You heard that right. On your New Year's resolution is 2023. I'm going to do the impossible to achieve what our guest Stephen Kotler calls paradigm shifting. Nothing is the ever same goal. But before we bring Stephen on, it's time for our perfect labor storm segment. So on each episode, we focus on just one disruptive, surprising or worrisome trend that we believe you should know. Here is today's perfect labor storm. So get this. 
The Flow Research Institute reveals that top executives in Flow are 500% more productive. Juxtapose that with the numerous studies that are coming out almost every day these days that report nearly six in 10 employees are burned out and eight out of 10 suffer from work-related stress. So one solution offered to mitigate burnout and stress is more flexibility or more balance with personal and work life. But if I'm doing the math right, it seems the answer might lie in Stephen's research, flow. If executives in flow are 500% more productive, that means they can produce the same amount of work on Monday as the rest of the people in steady state flow produce working Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So I'm not sure if we got your attention yet, but how about this? Flow helps people amplify creativity 400 to 700%. The solution to burnout and stress and creativity might not be in the four-day work week, remote work, office parties, other perks. It might be in human peak performance. So before we welcome Stephen, just a reminder that you can earn SHRM credits for just listening to today's episode. Just go to the googleizationnation.com website, click on podcasts, then SHRM credits, complete the short questionnaire so we know that you actually listened. And while you're there, if you're not a member of Googleization Nation, please sign up. It's free. And if you're listening to today's episode as a podcast, please rate the show and leave us a review. Perfect. And now just a little bit about uh, Stephen, and then we're going to bring him on. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, executive director of the Flow Research Collective, and he's also one of the world's foremost experts on human performance. He's the author of nine bestsellers um, out of 13 books total, uh, including The Art of Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, and The Rise of Superman, Bold and Abundance, to name a few. His work's been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. It's been translated into over 40 languages and over 100 publications, including the New York Times Magazine, Wired, The Atlantic, Time, Harvard Business Review, just to name a few. And he's also the co-host of the Flow Research Collective Radio, a top 10 iTunes science podcast, along with his wife and an author, uh, Joy Nicholson. He is the co-founder of the Rancho de Chihuahua, um, which is a hospice um, and special needs dog sanctuary. And one of the big reasons he's on today is he's got a brand new book that's coming out this February, February 2023, called NAR Country, Growing Old and Staying Rad. So we are so excited to be one of the first to preview it. And so without further ado, let's welcome today's special guest, Stephen Copper. Yeah, standing ovation from our Googleization Nation crowd. So, Stephen, we got so much to dig into today, but why don't we start with this? Tell us a little bit about your journey of how you got into flow and, and peak performance and, and this being a passion of yours before we dive into the book. So it's a great question. So I, uh, I started my career as a, a journalist in the early 1990s, and I was fascinated by sort of two things. And at the time, they weren't overlapping at all. But journalism is this great gig where you get to, you know, get paid to exploit your curiosity. And I was obsessed. I really wanted to understand how do people work, human behavior, how to like and and performance. But back then it was just human behavior. And it was a great time to be interested in it because neuroscience was starting to tackle these questions. I was always a little suspicious of psychology 
It felt too squishy, too subjective, very individual. Um, things were really indeterminate. Neuroscience turns out to be just the same, but I didn't know that at the time. At the time I was like, oh, neuroscience is absolute mechanism. It's same in everyone, it's shaped by evolution. I, so in the 90s, behavioral neuroscience, how do people work was a thing. It was no longer like this cluster of neurons and this part of the brain does what? It was, hey, how do human emotions work? And how does consciousness work? And how do we make buying decisions? And you know, all those kinds of questions fascinated me. Simultaneously, totally unrelated, I was obsessed with action sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, the like. And um, I was living in these communities, taking part in these adventures. And if you know anything about the 1990s in action sports, it's often referred to as the so-called era of impossible, where more impossible feats, things that had never been done before, uh, got done. And what was really amazing, it wasn't just that we were doing the impossible, we were iterating on the impossible. Somebody would go out, they'd do something that nobody ever thought was possible. And then two days later, somebody else would do something slightly better or slightly different. And then four days later, it was on top. And so it was this crazy flowering of human potential, unlike anything that anybody had ever seen. And yet, in these communities, like with these actual athletes, what I was seeing up close did not match anything that was sort of in the peak performance literature. If you read the, especially going up to like the early 20th century, like, Peak performers, they have good childhoods. They get, you know, they specialize early. They get coddled a lot. They get treated well. They study well. They come from, you know, good families. They have money. They're well-fed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all the folks I was hanging out with, this was a deep punk rock subculture. Everybody I knew came from like a broken home and a shitty childhood. They had no money. They had no education. There was so much risk-taking and so much substance abuse. Normally, if you put those things together in a community, People die young and go to jail. What they do not do is reinvent what's possible for the human species. So the, what was happening with the athletes? How was this possible became my first question. And neuroscience was the tool I wanted personally to use to address it. And that was sort of where everything started for me. That led to countless articles. I wrote a blog for Psychology Today for a very long time on these ideas. I then wrote, turned around and wrote a blog for Forbes for a very long time. You know, psychology today was sort of how does how does this stuff work for us was how do we apply it for innovation and entrepreneurship and that sort of stuff. And that led into seven books at this point and actual, you know, and then the Flow Research Collective, which is my current organization, is a science and training organization. On the on the research side, on the science side, we partner with folks at Stanford and UCLA and USC and on and on and on. And we study the neurobiology, peak human performance, what's going on in the brain and the body, performing at our best. And then we take that science and we use it to train people. And we work globally in about 130 countries. We work with everybody from members of the US Special Forces and professional athletes to a tremendous amount of C-suite executives and entire companies. We train uh, folks at Facebook, Meta, we train folks at Bain Capital. We train folks at uh, Accenture, San Francisco Police Department, the Air Force, big spectrum. And then we train individuals, um, soccer moms in Iowa, insurance brokers in Delhi, coders in you know Bangkok, take your pick. So the only reason I think you would care about all that bragging is we're data geeks. We measure everything and anything. So we have a really good, wildly diverse, globally accurate picture of what works and what doesn't. But it started with a bunch of action adventure sport athletes doing stuff that nobody thought was possible and they definitely shouldn't have been doing. 
and me trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Stephen, you, you talk in your book, uh, your, your new book, NAR Country, and it's talking about growing old, staying rad. Okay, so let's first decode <laughs> what the book is. Let's talk about NAR because a lot of our listeners may, may not be familiar with that. Mm. And, and gnarly, which is where it comes from, is sort of a, I wouldn't say it's the kindest word <laughs> that, that people could call you. Uh, and then also staying rad. So kind of decode sure. your title, your book, sure. and then talk about um, you know where that evolved from. But fascinating story about, uh, it, well, the genesis was the pandemic. Yeah, in a sense. Um, so... NAR Country is a book about growing old and staying right. It's a book about peak performance aging. And let, before we get too deep into the weeds, let's just define a couple of terms so people know what we're talking about because we're going to use them. One, I'm going to say the term peak performance over and over again. And what I mean by peak performance is nothing more or less than just getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And when you're looking at peak performance, peak human performance, the heart of that biology, the state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. You may call it runner's hire, being in the zone or being unconscious. The terms are endless. It is scientifically defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it refers to any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. It's so focused on what you're doing on the task at hand, everything else just starts to fade away and melt away and all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. And at the start of the show, Ira, you mentioned a couple of things. Um, it's actually not my research that you were talking about. It's the McKinsey Institute, right? The big business consultancy. They did a 10-year study of top executives in flow and discovered that they're on average 500% more productive. But that's just one example. Learning rates, creativity, cooperation, collaboration, empathy, perspective. I can. The list is really quite long because everybody, we're all optimized for flow. We're all optimized to perform at our best. We can all access this state. It's universal universal in humans and it's it's everything it's cognitive and physical so that's definitions out of the way the book is about peak performance aging so what happened is to really sort of um long story i don't tell this i tell this story at sort of the begin at the end of the book but it's actually the beginning of the book i was on the phone my last conversation with me hi chick sent me hi the so-called godfather of flow psychology and brilliant mind great man amazing he passed away during the pandemic but this is the last phone call we have together um and uh which was really really sad because we had just merged with his company he had a 20-year leadership development company and we just like merged together um and we're going to do a whole bunch of work together and he, he passed away before that could happen um but we were talking about and i'd asked him a question about action sports actually i it turns out he was a serious mountaineer and rock climber. And I, and I wanted to know, he had never talked about it publicly. I was like, dude, you got to tell me how much did your experience as an action sport athlete influence your early research? You know, you climbed a lot of mountains, you did a lot of rock climbing, you know, tell me what, what what's going on. You tell other stories at Ted and, 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 but like, just give me the truth kind of thing. And there's this long pause, he doesn't say anything. And I'm on the other end, it's like 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, crap, I just offended <laughs> me. I at me. I, oh, shit. And uh, finally, he says, well, Stephen, you got to be careful. And I went, oh, what? What? Huh? I got to be careful. What are you talking? Like, what is this? The answer to And he had a stroke and I was worried he had maybe like lost the plot. And right. And so I was like, well, well, Mike, me, uh, 
what do I have to be careful about? He's like, well, you do something your whole life for flow. And then you get to my, be my age and forget about climbing mountains. Some days I can barely get out of bed. You need a backup plan. You got to be careful. And it was literally like the godfather of flow psychology talk. He did like one flow junkie to another saying, look, man, however you get the most flow in your life, you sort of need a backup everything that we're about to talk about started out as there was 20 years of research into peak performance aging before that, but it was in all these different places. It wasn't really peak performance aging it was all these. So I've been studying it, but I hadn't thought, Oh, I got to put this all together. We'll come back to why this was my particular backup plan later. What I decided to do is teach myself how to park ski. Now park, I was 53 years old at the time and park skiing is the domain in skiing that involves doing tricks off jumps, on rails and boxes. You saw the Olympic, it's Eileen Goo, only with gray hair. It's very, very dangerous. It's very, very acrobatic. And for about 12 different biological reasons that we can get into in a minute, it's considered impossible. Well, very, very difficult if you're over the age of like 30, 35, by 40 or 50, it gets to be downright impossible and outright crazy. Um, and what I knew that other people didn't maybe was there were a bunch of studies in fields like systems neuroscience and embodied cognition and flow science um, and a couple other fields that in the lab, in these studies, these ideas said, hey, if you put them together, older adults should be able to learn and progress in seemingly impossible activities like park skiing. And I decided to put it to a test. And I made a list of 20, 18 tricks that would, it was actually 20 tricks that would get me from zero to intermediate. Never done this before to I'm an intermediate. I created a methodology, plan, blueprint, here's the tricks. And the goal was really, I wanted train parks come in sizes. There's kitty parks, small parks, medium parks, large and extra large. And the extra large is pros and large is experts. I figured if I could ski a stylish line through a, sm a kitty, small and medium park, right? And learn these 20 tricks. That was pretty, I got to intermediate and I had like, wow. And I thought maybe it'll take five years, right? But it was a backup plan. We'll talk about what that plan was in a bit, but cool. I got there in a season and it was crazy how fast I progressed. Like it didn't make any sense how fast I was progressing in this activity. My ski partner, now mind you, I had been skiing my whole life. I was a big mountain skier, which meant I like stayed in contact with the snow and went straight down the hill. Right. I, park skiing is backwards and sideways and upside down. There's all kinds of tricks. Very, very different. I had a ski partner. He was a former sponsored athlete. He'd gotten very hurt, stopped park skiing, hadn't skied, park skied in probably a decade. He started applying my stuff, comes back to the sport, and he's making crazy progress. So we think to ourselves, wow, this, this is really cool. We've run the world's smallest pilot study, but we've got tantalizing data, tantalizing data. So we then take all these ideas we assemble a group of 17 older adults, ages 30 to 68. And we, in four days, and I, we, I can talk about what we did more specifically, we teach them how to park ski. And then we take these same ideas, take it out of park skiing and snowboarding and just run 500 people through the protocol to see if they can start reinventing what's possible in the second half of their lives, which was what this was all about in the first place, right? And uh, the results have been stunning. So um, we like what we've done. We're confident in it. There's way more research to be done, but now our country really sort of chronicles that original experiment. And it was, it was two things. One is experiment in peak performance aging. The other thing 
Um, and I, I'm sure you, you noticed this as you were going through it. It's a bit, uh, it, it goes day by day through my season. And the reason is nobody has ever, at least that I am aware of, written a book about applied peak performance. Even myself and like all, I've written seven books about the science of peak performance and how it works in the real world and in business and in science and technology, all these places. But like, how do you apply this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis? You need to do something like this to show people what it looks like. So it's a book about applied peak performance and probably the most practical book I've ever written on that subject, coupled to, hey, this is peak performance aging. And the short version about peak performance aging, and then I'll shut up. But one thing I wanna get out to sort of sum this up is, since the old idea about aging, which is the traditional idea, what I like to call the long, slow rot theory, it's the idea that our mental skills, our physical skills, they decline over time. There's nothing you can do to stop the slide. Good luck. And it turns out there's a pile of research dating from the 90s to now that says this is not true at all. All the skills we used to think declined over time, it turns out we now know they use it or lose it skills. And if you never stop training these skills, as I discovered and as everybody I worked with discovered, you can learn them and even advance them far later in life than anybody thought possible. And just to put a bow on this for people, if you go to nargcountry.com, the website, nargcountry.com, I have to go back to the title in a second now that I've said all this stuff. Um, you can click on peak performance aging experiment. We made a video. We actually had a National Geographic uh, camera and follow us around and, and record the experiment so you can see all of this. Now, what is the title of the book? NAR, as you pointed out, is action sport slang. It's short for gnarly. And it's a very specific meaning. Action sport athletes are actually very, very literal because these terms can be life-saving in certain scenarios. In action sports, NAR is defined as high in perceived risk and high in actual risk. In country is any defined territory or landscape. And thus, NAR country is a great description of our later years, high in perceived risk, high in actual risk. And as I sort of learned along the way, phenomenal description of the gritty mindset we need to thrive in those later years. So that's the book. That's where it came from. That's the title. And that's a little bit about it. How'd I do? Great. It, Stephen, as you're describing all of that, I keep thinking you beat Ponce de Leon to finding the fountain of youth, which is awesome. And in, in thinking about that, you, you talked a little bit about how in the book you go into detail about kind of what that recipe is of how you get people to, to peak perform later on in, in, in the back half of, of their life. Can you share maybe not all of the trade secrets, but what were some of the, the things you found that are really important for people right now in their minds that are thinking, hey, I'm in my 40s, 50s or 60s. I've always thought about doing fill in the blank, whatever it is, but I'm too old. Where do they start in terms of doing something new? Yeah, let me let me tell you one bit of good news. And then let me tell you the bad news about the good news as a way to answer your question. That's in terms of where we start, just because it's surprising. The answer here is surprising. So it turns out, and this was predominantly the foundation work of Gene Cohn, who is often talked about as the godfather of peak performance aging. He is the first director of the National Institute on aging. He's run a number of the biggest studies ever on aging. And he discovered something shocking, revolutionary, and really important, which is um, rather than like a long, slow decline in our brain, as we enter our 50s, because of certain shifts in brain function and certain genetic things, et cetera, et cetera, 
we gain access to legitimate cognitive superpowers. So one of the reasons I was able to learn so quickly is in our 50s, intelligence source and really like abstract reasoning, problem solving, really difficult to access portions of intelligence soar because of neurobiological changes. Same thing happens to creativity, creativity soars and um, including divergent thinking, right? Thinking outside the box, the hardest, most difficult to train aspect of creativity and really at the heart of innovation, right? We want to keep pace in an accelerated society in our, in our businesses this kind of creativity and innovation problem solving you really need. We also see, and HR is gonna love this, expansions in empathy and wisdom. Both happen naturally in our 50s. And when I use the term wisdom, wisdom is an actual defined neurobiological trait. We, it's about 12 different structures of the brain working together. It, uh, I'll talk a lot about expertise and wisdom. Expertise is all the stuff you learn consciously. Right. I'm reading a book about Ponce de Leon. I'm learning about the fountain of youth. Wisdom is all the stuff I'm learning unconsciously. So Jason, Ira and I are interacting for the very first time and we're picking up subtle non-conscious signals. Oh, he's friendly. Oh, he doesn't like this topic. Oh, all that, all that stuff. That's wisdom. And they're stored in different areas of the brain flow. Um, excuse me. Uh, peak performance aging allows us to gain access to new levels of empathy and perspective taking and wisdom Second half of our lives. Now, here's the bad news and here's the answer to your question. So where do you want to start? Here's something really cool. Peak performance aging starts young, one. And I'm going to tell you something else that's really, really cool. Most of the giant big levers that people reach for when they think about peak performance aging, they're going to mess with their diet, maybe. They're going to, if they're <laughs> Western traditionalists, they're going to go to the doctor and they're going to start taking a bunch of pills. If they're a little funkier, they're going to go to their functional med doc and start taking a bunch of supplements, right? And this is sort of, the, and they're going to start getting more exercise. And it's probably going to be aerobic exercise. Chances are they're going to go run on a treadmill or like that's, this is what most people do when they want to like get better. And it turns out not only does peak performance aging start young, but the biggest levers that are available to you are cognitive levers, psychological levers, and lifestyle changes. And peak performance aging starts in our 20s, because if you want access to the so-called superpowers of aging, you have to pass through what psychologists call moderators, if then condition, gateways of development. By, the, by age 30, you have to have solved the crisis of identity. You gotta know who you are in the world by around 30. The reason is in the next decade, by around 40, you gotta solve what economists sometimes term as match quality or match fit which is a, a blend between who you are, your values, your strengths, and what you do in the world. Usually what you do for a living or what you do with the bulk of your time. That's, that's in your, and if you don't know who you are by 30, you can't solve that by 40 because how do you know what your strengths are and your values are if you don't know who you are in the first place? In your 50s, you have to forgive yourself and all those who have done you harm. Or... It gets in the way of the empathy and the wisdom that is supposed to be unlocked. And finally, if you really want access to all those superpowers, you need to be creative in your 50s. Creativity and the act of thinking creatively actually is what really unlocks a lot of those superpowers. And if you want to hang on to those superpowers for the rest of your life and for them to really matter, two other things come into play afterwards. You have to train against physical fragility, Right. You're, there are a lot of things that will start to decline. They, that's automatic. 
the difference between then and now is we used to think we were just screwed. Now we know, oh no, if you train like a madman, you actually can hang on to this stuff so much longer. Um, in fact, just like, let me, let me just give you one data point to emphasize this because it's, it's the one I like the most because it was the one I'd heard so frequently, which is VO2 max, which is the upper threshold aerobic capacity starts falling off in our 20s and like really goes off a cliff after 50. And people were like, yeah, you'll never get top VO performance in somebody over 50. You just can't do it. And it turns out that's totally wrong with a couple of modifiers, but we, there's all this data that just came out on, they started measuring VO2 max of 80 year old triathletes. And they found their VO2 max is like a 35, a healthy 35 year old male. So in their eighties. And so, and, and you can start training it by the way, if you want, if you're 79, you can start training it and make a dent. But what the research shows is for, to preserve the VO2 max, you really want to start in your fifties. So physical fragility, you got to start fighting against in your fifties. And we can talk more about what that means later. Um, I will also say that knowing what this means, and I'll get to this, but I just want to make this point really matters from an HR perspective. Knowing all these things and what I'm about to say really matters from an HR perspective. I'll come back to the point in half a second and finish this one. You also have to train up risk tolerances. So simply put, all the things that we get, all the superpowers, if there's too much fear in our system, when we're fearful, um, we're not creative. The brain gets logical and linear. So it, when, when we're scared, it goes, give me a safe solution. Give me the thing that worked a million times. Don't find some wild new solution that may not work because you know my ass is on the line. So risk, risk aversion de, uh, increases over time. There are certain categories where this is not true. Social risk actually doesn't because by the time we're 50, we just don't care what other people think. So we'll go up and introduce ourselves to strangers, no problem. And if you work in markets and understand money, financial risk doesn't decline. If you don't, you're saving for retirement and you get more financially conservative. But if you know what you're doing, it'll that increases. But all the other categories decrease. You have to fight risk aversion. You have to train up openness to experience and, and, and a bunch of other things to preserve all of these superpowers. Now, the final thing I want to see, I want to go back to the HR point and why I think all this matters, especially on your show. I have spent years, decades at this point, talking to CEOs about flow, peak performance, their companies, their organizations. And we spend, I, I got to say, at least 50% of every conversation I've ever had has been on hiring and training, which seem to drive more CEOs crazy than almost anything I know. And as a CEO, I totally emphasize, um, or not as an executive director, um, I have a different CEO now, um, former CEO, now executive director. Um, my point is that in talking to CEOs about business in the 21st century, I always hear two things. I, I hear, God, I want creative employees, innovative employees, because I want to keep pace with the rate of change and competition's kicking my butt. And how do we do that? And the other thing that I hear is I need empathetic employees. And I need empathetic employees from a psychological safety. I want to build great teams. They got to function well together. Teams are at the heart of great businesses without psychological safety, without empathy. You can't do it. And then the mantra of 21st century business over and over and over again is customer centric thinking. And how can you think like your customers without empathy? My point is well-trained over 50 year olds 
are the ideal workforce of the 21st century. We are literally, HR departments are literally laying off right now in droves for really stupid ideas. Everybody they actually need to thrive in the 21st century, but it's not indiscriminate 50 year olds if you wanna be hiring. You need 50 year olds who actually have solved the crisis of identity, match fit, forgiveness, have trained up creativity, have trained down physical fragility and trained down risk aversion. And if you get that right, you are talking about a business, an HR business revolution in terms of who we're hiring and who we need uh, going forward in the 21st century. So um, I'm really like, I'm really excited to talk to you guys about it because like this is the I make this point at the very end of the of of the book, right? Almost the last third, I think three pages from the ending. But it was in a sense one of those things. Um, this is also, also sort of like, I knew this before Chick sent me, I had, and I had this conversation. So it was one of the things I went, oh shit, this might be possible because of these superpowers of aging. I maybe, maybe this will actually work. And um, if it does work, what does it mean for HR? Um, so those are all the big picture, but you asked a second question. And if I'm talking too much and you want to ask another question, tell me to shut up. If not, I'm going to make one more point. All right, one more point. You asked where to start. And where to start is actually very, very simple because the data is overwhelming and it's surprising. Mindset is where you start. So there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that shows that those people who have a positive mindset towards aging, meaning they believe that the second half of their life is filled with potential and opportunity and it's a, it could be exciting, literally, Health outcomes are much better. Longevity outcomes are incredible. The, there have been tons of studies because this work dated, dates back to Ellen Langer's lab at Harvard in the 70s and goes from there. But uh, one of the most famous studies, the Ohio uh, Longitudinal Study of Aging and Retirement, it's a 20 year study, 75 to 95, of the impact of mindset on aging and longevity. Much better health outcomes along the way in an extra seven and a half years of life. And this number has been found again and again and again. So the place this has to start is you have to shift your mindset. And um, I can talk a little bit more if you want about where mindset comes from, but that's, we'll, we'll stop there for now. And I've given you a boatload of information, um, but these are all the, some of the biggest levers along the way. And none of them are the things you think about when you think about successful aging and peak performance aging, right? Everything I just said, you're like, Really? This is successful aging? But yeah, it, it's exactly how our neurobiology is designed to work. And Steven, there's so much there that's absolutely fascinating. The one I'd, I'd like to ask a follow-up question on is you mentioned that we, we have research that shows that fear kills creativity. Does it shock you at all? We're still living in a time where we're seeing many top-level executives that are getting front page of the media, it seems like every day, that are using fear tactics with people in terms of trying to increase productivity and efficiency. Yeah, it's a, so fear is an awesome motivator if you're a peak performer. The peak performers I know, the best of the best love fear as a motivator because fear is good because it gives you focus for free. Anything that gives you focus for free is amazing because it's the largest burden on the brain. Brain's an energy hog. It's 2% of our body weight, uses 25% of our energy at rest. What's the thing the brain burns most of the energy, its energy doing? Paying attention, focusing. Anything gives you focus for free, 
be it intrinsic motivators, curiosity, passion, purpose, right? Focus for free and all those things or fear, all very beneficial. The difference is peak performers have more experience playing with fear, right? You can train yourself up to get really good at it. And for peak performers, I will, when I'm starting to write a book, I'll always say, well, where's the largest challenge? What really scares me? I want to go in that direction. But I've written 14 books and 12 of them have been bestsellers. So I've got some confidence here that I know what I'm doing and I can rise to the challenge. So great. It's a super motivator for me. But if you're not good at dealing with fear, you've got massive problems. Fear from a performance standpoint is not just creativity. It crushes learning, crushes creativity, crushes motivation. In fact, back to an HR topic, I always, when we hire at the Flow Research Collective, I, I, everybody on my staff knows this. I always tell people, you are hiring two employees. You are hiring that person when things are going well, and you are hiring that person when they're scared. And if you work in a entrepreneurial business of any kind, something that moves fast, where shit goes wrong, you better, like, you gotta pay attention to that. A little bit of norepinephrine, which is the chemicals underneath fear are norepinephrine, which is a neurochemical, and cortisol, which is a hormone. First of all, they're horrible for your system in large amounts. Little bit is great, it primes learning, but too, there's a sweet spot. Um, too much completely blocks learning, destroys creativity. In fact, the part of our brain that makes decisions about, am I gonna search for a logical answer or am I gonna search for a creative answer to the anterior cingulate cortex? And it, how active, how much norepinephrine is in that part of the brain is what determines what it does. So it goes on and on and on, but there's huge penalties for too much stress. Using fear as a motivator, using fear as a selling tactic. First of all, it's lame. Most of us um, know this is being done to us at this point, really well aware of it. And so most people, um, you've lost me entirely. Like if I see you using fear as an anything, I'm out, I'm done. I don't want anything to, I don't want anything to do with you. It, like it's, it's an end of our relationship kind of thing. Don't, it's, it's, it's cheap marketing. Um, it's cheap attention gap gathering. It doesn't work in the long haul because it burns people out. Um, and you're not, you're not going to end up, end up where you want to go ultimately. And you know, you know, this, you can threaten to fire an employee or you can, you know, work with them a different way, which is more, you, you get to threaten to fire an employee once, right? That's sort of a card you get to play once, maybe twice. But like after that, like you're, you're, you're done. You better find a different motivator. This is not going to work. So Stephen, we got to take a quick break, but it, it's amazing. I mean, this has just gone incredibly fast. Uh, but the one thing is you, you may not know this about me. I've been described as a millennial in a baby boomer body. I can tell you from the physical fragility that you talked about um, that that sometimes tying my shoe or picking something up from the floor is an Olympic event uh, to, to go through that as the baby boomer body. But as the mind, I mean, I just sold second business, starting a new one. People were talking about when am I going to retire? When am I going to slow down? And I've and Jason knows this and most of the audience knows this. If anybody knows me, my mind is still thinking as a 20 or 30 year old. It's like, Ira, how, how, old long? how old are you? I'll be 72. I bet I want, I, this isn't the work I do, but you know, happy to make recommendations. Well, get you the right kind of physical training. We, we can, you could reboot functional fitness really easily.
Oh, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, I, I, even as you described, I mean, I exercise every day. I do 45 or 50 minutes on a, on a Stairmaster. I do, but what I don't do is enough stretching, but yeah, so I, I do activity my, my, every yeah, day. You, around, I, you're doing it wrong. I, I heard you. I, I heard you loud and clear. But you do not want to be. So, okay. So very quickly, I just have to say this because we mentioned the Stairmaster twice. Why do, one of the reasons action sports in our country is action sports in general are, are so great for as a peak performance aging tool. If you want to preserve brain function late in life, right? Stave off cognitive decline, stave off dementia, Alzheimer's, right? There are two things. Uh, the, the, what you really want is neurogenesis and the birth of new neurons, and the birth of new neural nets. Where does most of the adult, adult neurogenesis take place? In a part of the brain known as the hippocampus. It does long-term memory, but it also does a very specific thing. It does location, place, grid cells, space cells. Um, this is what's in the hippocampus. Um, why? Because when we evolved, it really mattered. Remember where you were when something important happened. So if you want to stimulate neurogenesis, you want to have emotionally charged experiences in novel outdoor environments, because that's exactly what the brain evolved to do. So if you take your running off your treadmill and into the outdoors, novel environments, vary your roots every day kind of thing, but massively amplifies neurogenesis and preserves those neural nets. So like you're almost there, but you got to take it outside. We'll have to talk to you about how do you keep the hips going and, and the knees, the hips and the knees. But we are going to take a short break. We are talking with comparable Stephen Kotler. Amazing. I was at the, I was the fastest uh, 35 minutes, I think, that we've ever had on this show. Um, but appreciate you being here. Appreciate everybody listening. We've got a pretty active uh, chat board. If anyone has any questions, please post them. We'll try to get them to Stephen. If not here, we'll, we'll try to get a, a response afterwards. Uh, but we're going to take a, a really short break and talk about adaptability and purpose. For most of us, Change is freaking terrifying, and unfortunately, there's no app to adapt. That might change in the not-so-distant future, but for now, we're on our own. That means we can either accept our default future or reimagine our tomorrow. For those of you who choose default, good luck. Just remember, there's no pause button for change. You can't turn back the clock, and there's no get-out-of-jail-free card in this age of perpetual uncertainty. Like it or not, change will happen all around us. And that change is not becoming just more disruptive and frequent, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, or VUCA. Fortunately, you can make change work for you and turn it into your personal and competitive advantage. Reimagine your future to one in which you're living with purpose, you're happy, and you're growing, thriving, and flourishing. If you're ready to rewrite your next life chapter and regain control of your destiny in this never normal world, your journey starts here. Contact the leader in adaptability and making change work for you, your team, and your organization. Ira S. Wolf, adaptability.expert. There's a certain kind of coach who believes what we believe, who leads people to greatness, who gets people unstuck, who unlocks all of your passion, a coach who helps people discover what drives them, 
to tap into their superpowers. Then knowing your why is the first step to untap potential, to focus, to breakthroughs. A coach who's looking for a better way. Are you that coach? Hey, welcome back, everyone, to the Geek Skeezers and Googleization Show. We're with Stephen Kotler today. We're talking about flow and narc country and aging and peak performance. If you missed the first part of the show, you got to go back and click rewind and, and listen from the beginning or pick it up on the podcast. Stephen, there were so many things you talked about relating this to HR. You, you talked about older workers and, you know, companies have been shedding older workers for years. And just at the time when they've got wisdom, you talked about empathy, certainly more, much more than a buzzword anymore. We talk about labor shortages. We talk about, you know, every executive is talking about more productivity, more creativity, more innovation. How do they grow? But I love your, when you talked about hiring, that you hire two people. I've, I've said for years, and that was sort of my, what my company was about, Success Performance Solutions for, for 28 years, the one I just sold, talked about hiring people. And people, we did a lot of behavioral testing, cognitive testing, personality testing, that type of thing. But people would say, are they a good fit? And I'd always look for what you talked about was that second person. What happens when, that, that when the, the second person shows up? Uh, and and the other and the analogy that I used was that everybody's looking to say, "Hey, it's got three round tires," but the fourth one's going. When is the fourth one going to go flat? How fast is it going to go flat? Doesn't matter that there's three good tires, but there's a fourth tire, and you have to address that issue. So I love everything you say and and crossing over that. Now the one thing though, I I know we probably have a lot of listeners. By the way, I'm disappointed you don't have your t-shirt on. Life is too short to go uphill. I did read the book. See, there was a question you asked. How do you progress as a skier if you can't actually ski? And I think there's a lot of people here talking about that is not only getting past the mindset of I'm too old to do that, or I don't live in the right place, or I've got too many, you know, there's, there's a whole list of excuses people have. How does, you know, I, I don't want to say extreme sports, but how does I guess defiance of, of fear and defiance of aging fit for the average Jane, Joe, Bill, Sue, that's sitting out there in their office and say, I'm just trying to get my big bills paid. I'm just trying to make enough so I have time. My kids, there's food on the table. My kids are taken care of because there's a lot of people that are literally just surviving and, and even finding a half hour to go outside and do something or exercise is is pushing the limit so how how do you progress as a skier if you if you can't actually ski i'm not actually going to answer that question i'm going to ask answer the other question you asked which is what should most people do to buy back time right when they're like that's the, all they can do is just like we can start i, want, I just want to start there um because uh we haven't talked much about flow and this is so this is uh, the answer is going to be very, again, kind of surprising here. So flow significantly amplifies productivity, learning, motivation, creativity, et cetera, et cetera. As you pointed out, McKinsey discovered half day, uh, one day in flow, you can get as much done as your steady state peers. Two days a week in flow, you're a thousand percent more productive than the competition, um, which is cool. 
My point is that um, flow, if you can get, if you can get into more flow more frequently, you get much more done in much less time. And it's going to be much higher quality work. So the question is, and especially if you're super stressed out, right? You're describing people who are very stressed out, you know, languishing a little bit, burned out, right? So overwhelming pile of research. A bunch of it came out of COVID, actually. Um, they wanted to know who flir who's flourishing now and who's getting their ass kicked and what are the conditions, right? What, what are the variables that who's led to thriving now? Um, and Adam Grant actually talked about this research in, in a recent TED talk that he gave, but uh, the one determinant of who's thriving now is who had the most flow during COVID. How much time you spent in flow was the single largest determinant. It's all, how much time you spend in flow um, is also very important towards preventing burnout. So these are related. And um, what we tell people, or we always start with people, is what's known as your primary flow activity. This is the thing you've done since you were a little kid that just drops you into flow. Most of the time, you do the activity, you're going to just sort of disappear into the activity. For me, it's skiing. My wife, it's hiking the dogs into the backcountry. For friends of mine, it's gardening or dancing salsa or samba or um and by the way i just recite i have to learn a bunch of very complicated calculus for uh some neuroscience work i'm doing and i decided to start i went all the way back to algebra one because i was getting confused i was like damn it i'm just gonna start over and it turns out second time around algebra is flowing Did, who knew turns out algebra could be flowing the second time through when you actually understand what the hell is going on which is what happens when you learn at 55, what you should have learned in fifth grade, besides the point. Um, anyways, that's your primary flow activity, right? And the thing I want to tell people is if, you're, if you want more flow in your life, double down on your primary flow activity. Why? Flow is essentially kind of focusing skill. In the same way that mindfulness is like a focusing skill, flow is a kind of focusing skill. And the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So if I want a lot of flow at Tuesday at work, if I go skiing on Sunday, I'm training my mind to focus in a specific way. Bonus, when we drop into flow, the heightened productivity, excuse me, the heightened motivation and the heightened uh, creativity outlasts the flow state by a day, maybe two. Uh, creativity, that's just Teresa Mabiel's work at Harvard. She's the one who figured out that that creativity outlasts the flow state by a couple of days. Um, and finally, and maybe most importantly, for peak performance aging and for just general peak performance. And we talked about it earlier, so I wanna come back to it. When we move into flow, there's a, one of the things that happens neurobiologically is we get a global release of nitrous oxide. It's a gas, it's a signaling molecule, it's everywhere in the body. If you've ever worked out at the gym, right? About 20 minutes in, it gets quiet upstairs and your lungs open up, that's nitrous oxide. What that's doing is pushing stress hormones out of your system. Flow resets the nervous system to zero. So it calms you down. So this is huge, especially today, especially if we're burned out. So if you only have a half an hour to get outside, double down on your primary flow activity. What the research shows, if we could spend about three to four hours a week on our primary flow activity, that is enough to really start this moving. So again, it's a counterintuitive place to start, but you want to increase productivity. You don't have enough time. The very best way to increase productivity is to increase your time and peak performance. Flow is a very trainable skill, but if you're burned out, if you're because that was who you were describing, this is where you want to start, right? So 
Um, and uh, how do you progress as a skier if you can't actually ski? Uh, I train like a madman in the gym, and then we built a terrain park in an abandoned gold mine, uh, and I dirt skied. And if you want to actually understand the meaning of pain, try to learn how to slide a rail on skis while you're falling into dirt. Even in full body armor, it was extremely painful. You, you talked a lot about the physical side of this. It is to to get into flow and to uh, to 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 stay in the in big performance. Do you does how much has to be physical? None. Well, caveat. Yeah, I so, so the vast majority mostly flow and most of the work I do is on cognitive peak performance. But there are people who I like we work with athletes and this is a, a book about an athletic study, but like we train executives, right? Flow state if you want more flow in your life, flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. Flow follows focus. That's what all the triggers they do. They drive attention in the present moment. They do it a bunch of different ways neurobiologically, but that's what is going on. There are 26 known flow triggers. And all of them grab hold of your attention and drive it into the current moment. So action sports work because risk is a flow trigger for sure. But it's not just physical risk, emotional risk, psychological risk, intellectual risk. These are all flow triggers. Um, creativity is a flow trigger. So pattern recognition, when we link ideas together, you get a little squirt of dopamine, which drives focus, right? That's a flow trigger. So I mentioned earlier, Chick sent me a high in my backup plan. This is a great time to like mention this. Um, I was a big mountain skier. Risk was my primary flow trigger. Risk as you get older as your primary flow trigger is stupid. That's dumb. That's not a good, healthy way, right, to age. My, what I figured is if I could go zero to intermediate in park skiing, park skiing and that sort of those tricks would allow me to creatively interpret the mountain terrain features. When I see, and when you see an interesting feature, oh, look, there's a mountain of snow. I'll bet I could use it to spin, spin, flip, flip, whatever. That's pattern recognition. And if you stack creative idea on top of creative idea on top of creative idea, you actually get this amount of dopamine you get with uh, risk. Novelty is another flow trigger. So this could mean go skiing in a new environment you've never been in. This could be try a new trick. Or I have to, you know, if you're looking at the bookshelf over my, back that's all neuroscience and i have to read a lot of neuroscience to do my job and he's, a lot of most of what i read is textbooks and as you can imagine they're the most thrilling exciting books you've ever read in your entire life like page turners right so what do i do when i have to read a bunch of neuroscience books i tend to get a hotel room with a balcony that looks onto a huge natural vista and i sit out there and i read the novelty of the Vista primed my system with some dopamine. And as I'm reading, I start making connections between ideas. That gives me a little more dopamine. Suddenly I'm reading in a flow state. Learning is through the roof. Retention goes up. I'm reading faster, et cetera, et cetera. So you can do it on the mountain or you can do it, you know, if you're just trying to train yourself up and whatever it is that you want to train yourself up. So Stephen, for folks who may be listening who are, are thinking, well, I'm not sure what my flow activity is to get me in flow. How can they go about discovering that? And then a second question we have from a listener is, how would you change office environments to help teams flow in the workplace? Okay, so both are great questions. Uh, let's 
Let me start with the second one because I forgot the first one already. But let me start talk about the awesome body parts, and then you can ask me the first one again. Uh, so there are individual flow triggers and group flow triggers. There's a shared collective version of a flow state. In fact, the most common flow state on earth is two middle managers in conversation at work. Why? Because management, once you're at the management level, there's a little risk involved, right? There's usually money on the line when you're talking about managers. There's some, there's some risk and interpersonal flow. Managers, they, they, they know how to manage. They know what to like focus on and they get right into it and Two managers who get into a conversation and lose a couple hours solving problems, most common flow state you can imagine. So um, very common at work, but if you want to optimize for team flow or interpersonal flow, one, open, open office plans are a disaster, just flat out disaster. They shouldn't, they shouldn't exist. Um, it, you need to be able to wall the individual off from the rest of the group. You need to be able to wall the team off. If you're looking for a model, what you're looking for is the mo is is Skunk Works innovation accelerators. The most famous innovation accelerator in business is Skunk Works, right? When Apple wants to, when Steve Jobs wants to invent the Macintosh, right? He leaves Apple, goes and rents a little shop behind the Whole Earth Restaurant in Silicon Valley in Menlo Park, flies a pirate flag, right? Says it's better to be a pirate than to join the Navy and secludes the research team. And what do you do in a skunk works, right? You wall everybody off. You have complete concentration. Um, no idea, too wild, too weird. So everybody's encouraged to take huge risks. And feedback is another flow trigger. You have very fast development cycles. The skunk works process is essentially an agile computing process, right? Fast feedback loops, rapid experimentation, run lots of little experiments. These are all flow triggers. They're all driving attention into the now but walling the team off from the rest of company is really key walling yourself off. So when I work with organizations, um, I'm going to swear on your podcast. Uh, I, the first thing I say is I say, if you can't hang a sign in door, this is fuck off. I'm flowing. You can't do this work. Forget about it. It's done. What does this mean in this new kind of multi-tier? I'm working at home. I'm working in the office, this kind of environment. Two things. One, uh, practice distraction management. If you're working alone or even if you're working in an office environment, like email, cell phones, smartphones, messages, all of it, turn it off. Complete concentration is needed for flow. It's a flow trigger, right? That's why off, open office plans suck. In fact, really great work done uh, by, on coders that shows that coders in flow and coders need flow to do their job. Uh, if they get knocked out by a distraction, a knock at the door, uh, it can take 15 minutes to get back into flow if they can at all. So there's a big cost to the distractions. If you're working at home, this also doesn't just mean shut off your cell phone and, your, and, all, and all that stuff. It means have your conversations. Talk to your wife. Talk to your kids. Talk to your boss. Talk to your coworkers. Hey, if you leave me alone now, and we can research shows that 90-minute blocks actually work best for uninterrupted concentration. We can come back to why in a second. But if you leave me alone for 90 minutes, I'm going to get more done productivity-wise because I'll be in flow. You're going to have more of me later. You get more of me, I'm going to get time back. But you have to respect that. So first and foremost, open off plans are a disaster. And you have to understand how flow works. And the complete concentration is at the heart of it. I will say on the team thing there is something you actually need before that which is uh when they study team flow you need everybody bought in on the same goal and it's got to be a goal that 
all the members of the team want to achieve, but nobody can achieve alone. So it's only by working together can you achieve. It's called a collective ambition. Is what. So it's if you want to try to engender team flow at work, the place you have to start is collective ambition. The team has to all be bought in that this thing that everybody wants, you can only get by working together. And so that it, that it has to start there. You also have to wall the team off and do a whole bunch of other stuff. But I wanted to answer that question uh, first because uh, it's a it's a, I'm, I'm passionate about it as you can as you can see. Absolutely. Well, what I heard from that, Stephen, is I'm going to tell my wife and kids, "Hey, Stephen said today, y'all need to leave me alone." Uh, so I can get my stuff done during the day. Just kidding, honey. I know she's watching. Um, but the other question Stephen um, wanted to ask you was, there's probably several people listening who this may be the first time they're hearing about flow and they're wondering, I'm not sure I know what my flow state is or what my flow activity is. How do they discover that? I'm going to give you a very short answer. There's So uh, there's a lot of longer answers, but um, flow significantly increases learning and memory. And let me take this one step further. Quick shorthand for how to learning and memory work. The more neurochemicals that show up during the experience, the better chance that experience will move from short-term holding into long-term storage. Flow is this big neurochemical dump. One of the things neurochemicals do is they tag experiences, important, save for later. So flow is this big neurochemical dump, a lot of neurochemistry, a lot of learning and memory. As a result, if I ask you to think back about your positive memories, go like five years at a time and think about your most positive memories, some of them are going to be anchored to, you know, dates. This was my birthday or this was our anniversary or this was, you know, this was my first date, my wife, those kinds of things. Once you get beyond those, chances are you're, they're all flow states. And what you got to start asking yourself is what do they have in common, right? When I was a little kid and getting into flow, were you alone or were you with other people? Are you wired for individual flow or are you wired for group flow? Ask yourself, you know, was I, was this a hand-eye coordination thing? Was it an intellectual test? Just interrogate your own experience and that's how you center in uh, on it. Um, and uh, that, that's usually the easiest way. We could go into a lot more detail or whatever, but that's usually the simplest place to start. I have one additional question, uh, Stephen. Then we're going to, you've been very generous with your time and, and this, this whole conversation. But you, you were talking about when, or when you were talking about the change of the environment of, of having the skunk works, of having, you know, walling, taking your, your teams and, and, and putting them in a, you know, in a, a non distracted, um, area or room or building or separate or however you do that. How does that fit into the whole conversation now about remote work? Where does flow fit into the work remote work environment? Is it, is, is it even possible to have? So, yeah, it's totally possible. So there's all kinds of studies. So if you're going to dive into the literature, you're going to hear the term presence. So if you're, if you're going into literature and you're looking for like flow on Zoom or flow on the internet in, in, in media, in, in those studies, they use the term presence. It means roughly the same thing. Um, but so you can have very flowy remote work conversations. But so group flow states, team flow states, they all have triggers. Uh, some of this work, uh, one of them is close listening. Close listening means I'm paying attention to you. I'm not thinking about the cool thing I'm going to say next or, hey, did he just insult me? Is that a secret dick, right? I'm not dwelling in the past. I'm listening to you. And 
this is so much more important zoom wise, right? Because close listening means I'm probably looking at the camera a little bit and not just you. So I'm making eye contact, right? You're doing all that stuff. If you can get it right, you can get flowing on zoom call, but there's less margin for error, I think, because of how it works. But I also think a lot of the other distractions that you normally get in an office environment go away. Um, I am, I'm not a fan of office environments. I think they, they hinder a lot of productivity as a general rule. My company, I've got about a hundred people who work for me. We've never had an office. We've we're all over the globe. We, we, we don't have an office. I don't want an office. Um, we get together when we need to get together, but I'm a big believer that um, very little gets done with more than three people in a meeting. And so I, I try to have very few people in meetings and I try to keep everything like very brief and, and, and focused um, in that way. But you definitely can, it's harder, but you can do it. The upside is that you have so much more control over your time working from home and how you choose to work. Um, it's so, it's much easier to achieve peak performance. There are certain things that, you know, obviously are difficult. And um, if you are an extrovert, it's going to be more problematic, right? If you're an introvert, it's a dream. If you're an extrovert, what I'm saying is going to be a little more problematic. And you, you definitely need that social bonding neurochemistry. Um, so if you can't get it at, at work, you got to get it elsewhere, right? So for, so for every manager and leader and executive out there who said, we're going to have more flow so everybody has to come back into the office, that's not what you're saying, right? <laughs> I don't think, I mean, I'm, there are certain companies that are really, really flowy and, and, and can do that work. Um, but I, I don't, I'm not, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a deal breaker. Um, now I, I do think there are, and I think more needs, research needs to be done. Sales teams do really well when they meet, right? There are certain kinds of teams that it's something about the, the cultural fit and, and we need to really talk about it. This is sort of like, we're at the cutting edge of like what we know and don't know. You know what I mean? Well, it's ironic that you brought up sales because sales was probably, you know, it's a remote will never work but sales has always been remote. People are always out. Sales itself is remote. What I have discovered is that sales people are tend to be so gregarious, such extroverted people and sales is so high pressure, high risk that they, that the, their need for companionship because it, it, it gives them safety and security at, at a way that they can't seem to get elsewhere. So that's about it. It's a slightly different thing. And it's not about what, you know what I mean, what people think it is. And let me, uh, let me put it in a slightly different con context for you. So one of the reasons uh, social support is really important for peak performance, aging and performance in general is, um, and this is key for sales, is every time you encounter a, 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 a situation, your brain has to decide is it a threat or is it a challenge, right? Either or. And one of the things it does to assess this is it says, do you got backup? Are there people who love you? Are there people who got your back, right? And if the answer is no, oh shit, this is a threat. And then you'll be meet that threat with a tremendous amount of energy. So this actually ends up draining a lot of energy and it's a real drain on performance. Um, if you've got 
people who love you and are going to pick you up if you fall down or people who understand the challenge and they've got your back, blah, blah, blah. Um, that calms you down. And because you're calming down, you're getting access to better learning, better creative creativity, all the stuff we talked about before. And so my suspicion is with salespeople, their jobs are so stressful and so scary um, that as a general rule, they need to be around each other because it does that. It calms them down a little bit. So like, that's what, you know, in, 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 again, not like, that's not the reason most business people would tell you sales teams need to get together, right? That's not what you would actually hear. That's not standard business advice, but I, it's one of the reasons I like neurobiology so much. It's, it's mechanism. It's how we work. And you're sort of getting under that, that squishy individual stuff. We, we need to start wrapping up, Stephen, and we want to make sure we get the lightning round, but there's always one question we close with. It's what should we have asked you, but that we didn't. I wish you'd ask me the relationship between flow and your favorite word, adaptability. There we go. What, what's the relationship between flow and adaptability? All right. It's, it's, it's I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so this is all also essentially why one of the other reasons I'm in the world of peak performance aging. Um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the Godfather of Flow Psychology, wrote a bunch of books on flow wrote a couple of books on creativity, wrote a ton of books on adult development. Why? Flow actually sits at the heart of, it's the major engine of adult development. What does that mean? I said earlier, and then we're going to get back to adaptability, which was the core of the question that you asked me. Um, we said flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. The most famous is known as the challenge skills balance. We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap. What this means is every time we go into flow, we're pushing on our skills. We're learning, we're growing. When the back end of a flow state, we are more complex, we are more adaptable. This is actually how we grow as humans. This is the engine of adult development. This is how we grow up. And it is also how we become more complex, more adaptable, more wise. So a lot of this stuff you, you guys are aiming at flow sits at the heart of because this is biologically how we do it to put it slightly last statement uh from an evolutionary perspective uh one of the theories about flow uh, and what it does is it's a signal of mastery when we get into a flow state when doing an activity it's a signal that we've actually mastered that activity um, which if you're a hunter gatherer trying to figure out like did i learn how to fight with this spear before i go on my first tiger hunt it's a good thing to know. Like you want to know, right? Like you want to be really sure. So anyways, that's the question I wish, wish you asked me. And I hope the answer uh, was good. Absolutely, Stephen. And we can't believe that we're coming up to the end of the show. You've been so gracious. And I can't help but think, Stephen, that this whole time you've shown us what being in flow is because the amount that you covered today and enlightening all of us on peak performance has been simply fantastic. And so we're now going to segue uh, into the final segment of the show, which we call our lightning round. We're just going to ask you about three questions to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. And so let's start with this one. What is your favorite song or band? Song is probably going to go to Tom Waits and it'll be Cold, Cold Ground. And my favorite band is pro again, it's a difficult one, but it's probably uh, Rise Against. Nice. Do either of those get you in flow state? Are they a trigger for you? 
Uh, it depends what it rise against if I'm lifting, for sure. Really good. And really good. Punk is really good for mountain bike, downhill mountain biking and lifting. Uh, it doesn't tend to work, so I need hip hop for skiing. Um, and uh, Tom Waits probably does not make put me into flow. Um, but sometimes it makes me want to slip my wrist, <laughs> but in a good way. I like that. So it's almost like a metaphor here of like pairing fine wine with food is like the different types of music for different types of activity that you want to do. I love it. Um, how about this one? If you could meet anyone in the history of the world, who would you want to meet and spend the day with? William James, godfather of psychology. I love William that. James. I actually have a, a plaque of William James. He's it's in my basement now, but it used to be in my old office whenever I used to work um, in an office space. Um, big fan of William James. Oh, yep, absolutely. So cool. I think the quote was, the greatest discovery of any generation um, is that man has the uh, power over his life by the choices that he makes. Something to that effect. But huge William James fan too. I think, by the way, the greatest discovery of any generation is that William James was there first. Yes. Like, it doesn't really matter, right? <laughs> Wherever you go, like, you can go all the way down, and, you, and, and, and who do you bump into? You, Damn it. I thought I had an original thought. No, no. That's William right. James beat, I yeah. love it. And then how about this? we got to ask yeah. you, with, with being an expert on human capability, if you could pick a superpower or develop one, what would it be? Teleportation. That's definitely the most popular one that we get, isn't it, Ira? Yeah, it absolutely is. It's like, yep, keeps coming up absolutely. almost every week. Seriously? Yeah. Damn. Oh, well. I was thought I was being original. No, no original idea there, Stephen. I was back to that. William James. Please ask me again. What was that? If you could pick any superpower, what would you pick? Originality. <laughs> love it. Perfect. Absolutely love it. Well, the, the, the name of the book is Nar Country, everybody, um, and it's coming out in February. Is that right, Stephen, when it's actually going to go out on, on bookshelves and be able to buy it on Amazon? Yeah, if you, you're dropping this first, so I want to, the one if this is early, um, folks, go to narcountry.com. We've got, I'm giving, you know, pre-sales help me to hit bestseller lists, and as a thank you, we're giving away $1,750 worth of peak performance training bonuses for anybody who pre-orders. So it's, and they're really, they're cool. Like that we, I worked really hard. We made amazing stuff. Love it. And again, time. that's narcountry.com, G-N-A-R country.com um, to be able to pre-order the book and get in some of those, those contests to be able to earn some of the, the peak flow training that comes along with it. Um, Stephen, any other places uh, where folks can get in touch with you and learn more about your work that you'd like to share? StephenCollar.com is me. FlowResearchCollective.com is, is, is the flow company. And um, I, one thing that for everybody listening, if you want more flow in your life, uh, so it turns out there are six major flow blockers, things that stand between people and more flow. And I got so tired of explaining them that we built a diagnostic. And anybody can take it. If you go to www.flowblocker.com, it's a free diagnostic. We'll email you the results. And even better, we'll email you a detailed multi-page, step-by-step, here's your action plan. So um, there's a whole bunch of stuff for our listeners. Perfect. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and we hope to have you on again um, in the future uh, to talk about this and the continuation of your work. I'm going to kick it back over to Ira um, as he gets ready to segue us to the end. But it's been a pleasure being with you today. 
Thanks, Stephen. It, it was great to meet. Uh, thanks for being so generous with your time. This was a rabbit hole. So for every come every response that you gave, I had like three more questions. Uh, so hopefully that you might come back some other time. More than uh, or, I'll, or I'll be sending these to you. And there was a number of questions from some of our listeners as well. So I'm going to ship those over to you. Hopefully we can get some uh, responses for them. Uh, too. But I know you don't celebrate the holidays, but have a happy new year and happy skiing. Hopefully uh, you, you got some good powder out there. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a pleasure hanging out with you. I appreciate your interest. in my Thank work. you, Stephen. Thank you. Well, that was an amazing show. What a way to close the year out. Ira, I took copious notes and uh, I mean, for, for me, there were so many, but I know we're up against time. But the one here near the end, when Stephen said, we want to help people stretch, but not snap. I mean, if you could put in a nutshell what we are experiencing in the workplaces of where people are being stretched way too far beyond their capacity, and that's why they're burned out. It's why we're seeing so many waves of mental health concerns coming on the back end of the pandemic. People struggling to get into flow and figure out the integration between work and life. I mean, I think that puts it beautifully is that we're stretching people to the point of snapping. Um, and so there's there's a lot of really good information there that he also shared in terms of what this means for managers in terms of how they lead and how you provide feedback and how you support your people. Um, so that was one of the the big takeaways for me. How about you? Well, again, so many. I stopped taking notes. I was just writing down the timestamp. <laughs> so he'd say something. I just write down the time and we'll go back and and listen to it and pull it out. So uh, we'll certainly have our share of audiograms and videograms and 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 quotes from this. Uh, I think it was the relationship that I didn't put together, uh, and and I'm so glad we asked the question. What didn't we ask? And he asked and he answered is the connection between flow and adaptability. But there was also uh, many and many comments, many uh, statements he made. The connection between flow and purpose flow and goals. Uh, you know, but for, for anyone, again, we've had a preview of the book and unfortunately most of you won't be able to get it for a couple uh, weeks or, or, or maybe two months. I'm not sure when in February is coming out. But again, we're all aging. Uh, we hear this all the time, too old to do this, too old to do that. Even today, he had so many quotes as you shared. Um, but from the book, uh, I wrote down a couple things. Uh, you know, fighting the urge to die a little bit each day. He, he said that a little differently in the beginning, but that was, you know, that was something we're always up against. How to not go gently into old age. Uh, he talks about teaching an old dog new tricks. I mean, these were just things. Again, we hear every day. They hold us back. Uh, we make life decisions about them, which only turn which all have negative consequences. But I also liked how he he responded to becoming, I, I guess, aging, uh, as well as at the same time, not only were we aging, but that we have to be sensitive to that. It, it's not just being reckless. It's just not saying it's 50 or 60 or 70, you go out like he's doing and skiing, uh, but it was so powerful that he included the, you know, that most of the mental block, most of the blockers are mental, that, that is a cognitive sense that having st stretching yourself, stretching, but not breaking relates to our relationships, our emotional limits. Uh, so again, there was so much and I'm just sort of rambling here, but uh, hopefully people will re-listen to this and definitely buy the book and go to the website. He's, there's a, there's a lot on his website. There's a lot of clips um, where you can just frankly, 
Google Stephen Kotler. There's, he's, he's all over. Absolutely. And we'll look forward to pushing out some information also. We'll be doing newsletter, blog posts, and things from this episode of Key Takeaways um, for everybody and be on the lookout for the podcast here in the next few days. But until next time, I'm Jason Cochran. We want to thank you, our listeners, for showing up today uh, and listening. If you haven't subscribed uh, to Geek Skeezers Googleization on your favorite podcast platform, please do so. A uh, great way to end the year and start the new year is to make sure that our latest episodes are always, you're getting notifications for those and they're going right to uh, your feed to be able to listen to those. And please leave us a review. We are in the top 1% in the world. We are the most forward-thinking podcast from the People Forward Network. A um, lot of accolades that have come this year and that's all because of you, our listeners, and because of our amazing guests. So thank you for tuning in and engaging with us. And as we sign off for 2023, um, here's to another amazing year ahead of us with many more wonderful guests like Stephen Kotler. And I'm Aubrey Wolf. Special thanks to Stephen uh, for being so generous with his time. He's, he's quite a busy guy. In, in between his writing and skiing, um, we were so happy that he was able to j join us and, and spend an extended period of time with us. Special thanks to the Y Institute for partnering with us and sponsoring this episode. Uh, thank you for being part of Googleization, everyone. And thank you, Jason. Um, this has been a great year. Uh, and uh, it's about a year and a half. It's almost about a year and a half uh, that we've been doing this. Uh, we probably have close to 100 episodes under our belt at this point. And uh, appreciate all the all the success. And uh, really looking for forward to uh, 2023 with you. Likewise, partner. Until next time, don't let this shift. Hit your plans. <laughs> <laughs>